The Zone Coverage Podcast Network. This podcast is presented in front of a live Astadio audience. Hey, hey, how's it going? It's Midwest Swing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. You can find Zone Coverage on Twitter at Zone Coverage MN. You can find Midwest Swing uh, at Midwest Swing Pod. I am Brandon Warren. I'm your host. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Warren. We've got producer Justin in the house and across the table, the pod father, Tom Schreier at T Schreier 3. What's going on today, man? I'm excited. Excited about some Hall of Fame stuff. Yeah. And so this is a special edition podcast. If you've been following the bit for the last couple of years, you've known that we have our very special friend Mike Berardino come on and reveal his ballot every year. This year is no exception, even though Mike is still in our hearts, but is many miles away. You can find him on Twitter at Mike Berardino. Mike, how are we doing today? Well, it's nice to be very special and I'm doing fine. And uh, yes, I did. Uh, I still have this ballot and um, it's uh, I've been very careful not to reveal any aspect of it, even though I'm badgered for details about it on social media frequently. What does it mean to you to still have that ballot, even though you're not covering baseball actively? Well, I think uh, I can uh, pay for my own baseball writer card if I like and continue to have this ballot for, I believe, up to 10 years, but maybe it's five. But um, uh, and I might just do that just so I can come back on this show. Yeah and dominate the proceedings. Well, we appreciate that is, very is much. Is it anyone but Cody Warren that's badgering you for information? I just, I, we have to clear the air that's, here. That's my brother, Rare. <laughs> Cody, Cody, he never badgers me. It's a pleasure to hear from Cody. It's it's other people. Oh, that's good. Well, I'm glad you, you held out for us, and we're going to do... You knew I would. You knew I would. This is the way to do it, and I, I'm telling you, I don't think anybody else out there... Uh, is uh, is is as disciplined about this information um, and saving it for a dedicated podcast the way we do, and I think uh, you know they're projecting uh, uh, more than 400 votes mm-hmm. uh, this year, 412, I think, Mr. Not Mr. Tibbs, Ryan Thibodeau's uh, site says projection, but I, I don't think there's 412 podcasts nope. and that's very good for you. So start asking me about it. You got it. So obviously the ballot this year is stacked in a lot of ways because there is a bit of a backlog. And I do want to ask you, first of all, one of my theories, if they don't want to get rid of the 10 vote limit, which I understand, how would you feel about this idea? Once you vote for a player, you are locked in as a yes for that player for subsequent votes, unless you opt out. So let's say you vote for Barry bonds last year and say, I'm locked in for bonds until he drops off the ballot, or I decide to vocalize that I don't want him anymore. And that way you don't have to be strategic about like an Andrew Jones, who some people are kind of polarized about. How do you feel about that idea? If I were, if I remember the BBWA and floated that and maybe it got knocked, would you still be in favor of it? Or do you think it's kind of a foolish idea? <laughs> the word foolish can be applied to many aspects of this process. Just sure. the very fact, maybe even that we have that we do it this way. So, I, but I'm not in favor of, of more legislation, um, more guidance, I guess, uh, more uh, decisions on who's actually going to be put before the, the voting body. But um, but what you're saying might have some merit, but I don't see the, inf- I, I don't like the enforcement phase of that. So I'm going to say no. Okay. Well, at least it, it has the right spirit. 
which is is what I'm going for. And so, well, I guess you're just trying. It's just annoying to fans and those who don't, who aren't among the 412 hallowed voters, um, for whatever reason that we're in this group. Um, that it's frustrating, I'm sure, to people, and it's it's odd to me as a voter to look at the tracking system and see that. Uh, it does change year to year. People magically pop up on ballots as they mm-hmm. get near the end of their tenure uh, span uh, of, of uh, possibility. It used to be 15. Um, you can kind of wrap your brain around that. That's why you see the Fred McGriff uh, push, let's say, but um, that I'm not part of. But uh, uh, the idea that, yes, uh, that uh, one year uh, somebody is a Hall of Famer in your eye and then nothing at all changed about them. Uh, but you take them off your ballot the next year. That that is odd. But Brandon, I don't see a, a way to uh, <clears throat> enforce that uh, without more headaches. How do you feel about the fact that they do this publicly? The this tabulating. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Ryan Thibodeau doing this, but at the same time, it's kind of like if the election results were released all day long until the end of balloting. And so, I mean, I also don't like the bullying aspect. As much as we have our opinions, obviously, nobody deserves to be run, raked over the coals, no matter how good or bad their ballot, objective or subjectively is. I don't like that part of it. And I also don't necessarily know that I like the idea of that influencing voters who may be on the fence. So as much as I appreciate being part of the public sector that gets to see it, I'm not super sold on the idea of this tracker system. I like it. And I've said this for a couple of years now. I like it because um, it does give those who want to be strategic um, with their ballot and their 10 slots, a chance to see where their support, um, is best placed. Um, it, it, and that still exists, uh, especially for those who have no issue with the PED history or the smoking gun, as I call it. Um, so I, and I, and I just find it fascinating and I just, I just love the spreadsheet. I, I, I don't know how he makes such a uh, uh, colorful and and uh, accurate and just chock full of information. So the spreadsheet alone, that is the best part of this process. If you take that away from me, Brandon, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to pull the covers over my head and go back to bed. The, uh, it's, uh, it's astounding. What, and if I tried to do that, having uh, dabbled in Excel <laughs> and done it poorly, I know I would delete it. Yeah. I would probably uh, fail to save each time and then it would cause a national stir but um oh that's the beauty of uh, google docs ryan is i think he's providing a great public service and it's uh i think cooperstown should bring him to here's an idea for you cooperstown should bring this man who i've never met or even spoken to to uh, the the induction ceremony that weekend because I think he's a force for good overall and I think he should be allowed to get up there and uh, and at least wave to the masses. Yeah, make him an honored guest. Well, let's dive into the ballot. And so there are some players who had nice careers but certainly are not going to merit you know, significant consideration. Are there any players you want to highlight that maybe not necessarily fringe guys or even guys who, let's say like a hypothetical 20 war guy, the people that just weren't on the ballot in your era that were on the ballot that in your opinion just did not meet your sniff test. Was there anybody you kind of want to highlight in that respect? I mean, Rick Ankiel, number one on the <clears> list <throat> is like, yeah, you know, cool story that he came back and was an outfielder and, and could really throw from the outfield. But you know, just he, not even really close. Yeah, you know, I um, 
I don't want to go alphabetically or this would be the world's longest podcast. Right. No, absolutely. We, there absolutely. is li- literally something a couple of team heads like us could say about everybody. Right. Um, I will say that some people I didn't vote for had some very stout career uh, OPS pluses, uh, for instance, as I do that sorting. I mean, uh, like a Travis you know, Hafner. Uh, take a separate, separate, yeah, Pronk. Pronk, uh, Stout, 134. Uh, Wells had a good career, uh, but falls short. Yeah, McGriff, uh, we mentioned he's in his last chance because of the shortened period. And I was around Fred McGriff's teams with the Braves, and I owned his fantasy rights back in the day when I played fantasy. And uh, and I can, can attest that certainly as a hitter, he was incredibly uh, patient mm-hmm. and consistent. But because we can measure uh, defensive contributions and base running, or at least we think we can, far more than we ever used to, uh, he falls short for me. And so there's no last minute. I do see he's getting uh, a a nice boost overall from the electorate, but um, the panic vote, as it were. But it would appear, based on Mr. Thibodeau's uh, breakdown that um that uh, fred mcgriff will fall short he's about 37.3 on the ballots that have been made public and that's not going to get 75 percent because generally you lose about eight to ten points off of your support uh that got public because a lot of people privately are not voting for you was he the one where the day they traded for him the press box started on fire am i remembering right, right? <laughs> yeah that's right that's a, cra- that's that's right. a crazy and, and uh, then the braves went on a big run well, um, they were on fire literally. Kind of race team. with the Giants. Yeah. yeah, it it held up for the rest of the decade. Oh yeah, that's right. Nin- uh, Ninety three, the year that I think the Giants won like one hundred and three games and didn't make the playoffs. Right. That's right. Yeah, that was it. They were chasing the Giants, and uh, yes, there was a fire in a in the grill room or something. But um, oh, the the crime dog fine career um, was kind of uh, statuesque at first base and that's not a good thing and uh, really just a station to station guy and uh, you know it was also traded for Robbie Alomar in a, mm-hmm. in a, in a big Joe Carter trade yeah um, so um, you know there have been some uh uh, he's a he's a significant figure in modern baseball history, but he's not going to the Hall of Fame. I would also say that um, the toughest calls, maybe the best way for me to, to yeah. segue here, is just yeah. to say the toughest the toughest calls. I would say I narrowed it to a group of uh, just four, really, because I will I'll uh, just come out and say it again. I have not had an epiphany to this date in terms of those connected to PEDs in a variety of ways. I have not had that epiphany. We've been over this on the podcast. I'm happy to discuss it a little more, mm-hmm. but that's the number one thing that that's the, that's the top uh, cause of modern divide between the fans who are fine with it and just say, and a lot of the voters who just say, just look, take the numbers on the surface. We'll never know for sure. Um, certainly a lot of people believe that there's already a player or two or even three that's already been put in uh, that could go in in this group that uh, was quote unquote dirty, but we have to have our own personal line, draw the line somewhere and mine still is on the side of no bonds, no Clemens, no Sosa, no Manny, um, and uh, you know, ultimately, uh, I don't like to decide these things, but without an epiphany, I don't like to decide them in advance. I like to wait till I have to. Well, uh, as long as I'm still allowed to, but I don't, yeah. you know, and A Rod would fall under that as well, among uh, others. So, and David Ortiz would be a very interesting call, but we're not there yet. Um, 
so that's those, those people that answers that. I mean, any of those folks that, that, that are in that argument, um, um, and I, and I, and I'm not on an Island with this, uh, I'm on a, and maybe the group is shrinking. Those mm-hmm. of us who, you know, people could say, well, who are you to, to, uh, to, to, to play your ballot that way? And I just flip over the ballot and point to that character clause. And then even that, you know, um, people will throw back in your face and talk about things that are done off the field in retirement by the likes of Kurt Schilling. Um, but, um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not there yet where I'm going to penalize him for, for ridiculous utterances quite different to me than the bastardization of, uh, the, uh, championship season, yeah. the, uh, the most sacred of all stats as we, you know, everyone can quote these things faster than they can their own phone numbers anymore. <laughs> Historically, uh, uh, there's meaning to to what happens between the lines, and so that's where I'm at on well, PEDs. I have some fringe guys that uh, were on my uh, on the outside looking in. I'm just going to run over them quick. Uh, Billy Wagner for me, the best of the best closers for me. I, it's like punters. The best punters in all time history are in the Hall of Fame in the NFL. I know they're specialists. So even if you view closers as specialists, the best ones I still think should get in. Guys like Manny, Andy Pettit. Jeff Kent, Todd Helton, Fred McGriff, Gary Sheffield for me are all in that kind of nebulous spot where in a an un an uninhibited you know list where I could vote for more than 10, I would probably consider Lance Berkman's kind of on the outside looking in. But for my 10, I mean, do you want to start on the like the kind of the the back end of yours or where do you want to start and then just kind of let's start rolling through them a little bit? Well, it just popped in my mind that we should mention a fair, a fair question would be, um, well, the Veterans Committee just put in Harold Baines and Lee Smith, um, people that um, I never voted for and uh, did not see as Hall of Famers and still don't, but they did that. Did that make you lower the bar no. in any way no. uh, in, in your selection process? And I think some of my vote, I think it's helping Fred McGriff. Sure. I almost guarantee you mm-hmm. that the Harold Baines factor is helping Fred McGriff uh, pick up 30 plus votes of people who didn't vote for him last year. But I didn't look at it that way. I didn't think that the com- uh, compounding the, the error of, the, of that committee was the way. Now you mentioned Billy Wagner, so I'll just come right out with it. I mean, I voted for Billy Wagner last year and, and to, to double back on your prior point about once you vote for somebody, I think it'd be helpful to our listeners, especially Mr. Thibodeau, um, to just say, I didn't, uh, remove anybody from my ballot that was there last year. So that means I once again voted for Edgar Martinez, mm-hmm. Mike Messina, mm-hmm. Kurt Schilling, Larry Walker, Scott Rowland, Andrew Jones, Billy Wagner. Those are all holdovers. That's seven, right? That's seven guys who who did not get in last year, but who I voted for last year. And Wagner, I thought, would have gotten a boost here. Right. He's not getting a boost. Um, I I sent and I we talked last year on the podcast how I felt Billy Wagner and Trevor Hoffman were essentially. Um, their candidacies were were very similar, and that they in their time Wagner was actually more dominant. And I don't really care about the accumulation of the save stat itself. Who was the more dominant pitcher? If I had to get three outs to finish off a game, in their primes, who am I? Who am I selecting? Uh, Wagner. He he didn't pile up. He's several hundred innings shy of uh, of Hoffman, and that was held against him. And 
and uh, he's only at 15.7 percent here in the in this year's balloting uh, uh, publicly, uh, and so it's not going to happen for him. I'm a little disappointed for Billy Wagner uh, and his uh, what I think is a viable candidacy um, that the Lee Smith mistake isn't benefiting him. Well, I'll just come out and say I also on my hypothetical ballot, which they're obviously not going to track, but I have Edgar, Mussina, Walker, Roland, Schilling, and Andrew Jones. So I have six of the same seven. I don't have Wagner. And in an unlimited ballot, I would have no question about it. And even on the rough one that I kind of jotted up, I had Wagner before I really started thinking about. And Bill James tweeted on Thursday, where do you think, do you think it's Andrew Jones is the best defensive center fielder of all time? And I mean, I know that defensive stats obviously have their issues, but Andrew Jones is a hundred plus runs on fan graphs clear of the next best center fielder. Now, again, I know we can't put a whole lot of weight into maybe retro sheet, figuring out defense for Willie Mays 80 years ago, but if it's a hundred runs difference, do you have any feeling of like, okay, yep, we can probably pretty fairly safely say Andrew Jones is the best defensive center fielder of all time. I mean, how, how do you feel about that claim, which Bill James was actually trying to, to rebuke? Um, I was not blessed to see Willie Mays play in a, in person. Sure. We've seen, we've seen the catch at the polo grounds on Vic Wirtz's drive. That was quite a run. Mm-hmm. And we know that the, what the anecdotal evidence was, and he's very possibly the greatest player, but um, Paul Blair, people like that who are defensive specialists through the years, I'd love to sit down. I mean, when you look at Paul, a lot, I, there is a, a connection between Paul Blair and those great Orioles pitching staffs that would all pile up the wins when, when we cared about wins on the 420 game win seasons, et cetera, the Cy Youngs. And they'd say, you know, Paul Blair is the reason that uh, the, ball goes up in the in the gap or in center field and we just walk off the field when there's two outs because he's catching it there was the same thing with Andrew Jones mm-hmm. and those great Braves pitching staff so you see that Maddox Glavin Smoltz make it to the Hall of Fame they had help uh, defensively because uh, they were not uh, Smoltz was a strikeout guy but the other two were not necessarily and and um and I saw it with my own eyes, and of course, uh, it is nice that the that war um, and jaws and and the variety of ways of, of the peak years, et cetera, that we can look at whether Andrew Jones uh, has a case. And uh, I voted for him now each time, and I will continue to. I don't think it's an incredible injustice if he doesn't make it, but I think that he's worthy because of the context. Mm-hmm. These people, uh, and so that's where it's hard to to go across here is impossible to go across here is and and foolish whether it's the lebron jordan argument or russ chamberlain we could talk russell chamberlain at the time but we can't talk say elijah on russell but um it, it context is is the thing and w- where were you in, in terms of your peers that's what this tries to measure uh so i don't really think it matters if we feel andrew jones is the greatest defensive center fielder of all time i think it's unanswerable what I do know is that in the context of the people put on this ballot that do not have PED uh, dings, the smoking gun, as it were, um, you know, with the and he did tail off quickly. Andrew Jones once so uh, when the Braves were not wrong to to move beyond him when uh, once he left Atlanta, it pretty much went downhill. Um, but in those in that period, that solid decade plus, he was. Um, 
he was astounding from the minute he got to the majors uh, and hit two home runs in a World Series game at Yankee Stadium that I covered uh, to the throughout what he was able to do just on random games in the middle of June that I saw plenty of in those in those 90s. Uh, it maybe that uh, clouds my judgment somewhat, but I do like that the uh, the dispassionate measurements uh, show that he's got enough war juice to. Uh, to, to get the votes and, and he's not getting that much support just the second time on the ballot. I do think over time that it may increase. I want, I hope that he stays on it. Um, uh, you hate to see him fall off about that. Some, you know, with only, only pulling at 8.1% on that lovely Excel spreadsheet at this point, this close to the announcements, uh, it is a concern that he might fall short of five and that would be a shame. Well, I have to ask you about Lance Berkman. What more would he have needed to do to get consideration from you? Because it's a guy with a 400 career weighted on base average, 144 weighted runs created plus. I think the peak is maybe just a little too short for a guy who played power positions. But this is a guy who was on the path until maybe just real late in his career. Is there anything that, I mean, would he have maybe like two more really good years and he could have been in your mix? Yeah, I don't know. That's a, I mean, he was a good player. He was good, not great. Let's say uh, certainly was part of. Uh, he did have a period of time where, where what you're saying is true. I mean, tr- tremendous productivity from, from basically his first full year of 2000 uh, all the way through the decade. Uh, the Houston years were, were excellent. The knees gave out, and, and uh, there's a bit of there's a bit of Andrew Jonesness to the length of time, but he, he was never affecting a game defensively or with his base running. At, at all and um was just uh serviceable at best i would say and um so just one of those good another one of those good but not great types and and um roy oswald another guy on those very successful houston teams uh that uh, that never quite uh completed the task did get to to the one world series but um those were you know biggio and bagwell finally were taken care of but um I don't know that they're going to be joined by uh, by these others who um, had very solid careers, um, mm-hmm. uh, but not but not to Hall of Fame level. So let's you know, Berkman um, was not even really one of my toughest calls. I would say I'd say um, yeah, he was a cut below. Even uh, I, I think Todd Helton was one that I really uh, yeah. Yeah. labored over and wanted to make sure I got it right. Uh, that it was because I'm voting for Larry Walker routinely, uh, ignoring some of the Coors Field bias. Um, what about Helton? Well, Helton, his splits, uh, might have even been a little better, a, a road splits than, than Walker, but not providing the value defensively or on the bases in, in the course of his career and not a long enough peak. So, um, he's sitting there at 20% uh, on the public voting so far, so it doesn't look like. Um, you know, Todd Helton's going to surge onto the ballot here, but at least comfortably to the point where we can continue to consider him, and, yeah. and that's important. But Roy Oswald's only got two votes so far, and I think that's not enough support. You know, you either are or you're not. But and he's he's not quite there for me. But he's also went on pitched in Philadelphia successfully for a while, which was not an easy place to do so. But um, um, just two votes so far for him. So almost certainly uh, Oswald is going to be one and done. But um, those are those are kind of the 
The others, and then Vish Kell is one that I see a lot of talk about, and he's actually pulling right at uh, the same as McGriff at 37%. So he's not going in this year, but he's comfortably in that spot where he's going to have more opportunity to be considered. And what a wizard with the glove, no doubt. Saw that act uh, in person as well and and was, was blessed to have seen that. And, uh, you know, fine gentleman, uh, you know, continued, goes back to the minor leagues and, and, and is managing there and, and could improved as a hitter over the course of his career, but, but not nearly enough damage with the bat, um, over time with the metrics that we have with modern analytics and, and, and where his OPS plus is, um, it, and it just doesn't push his, his overall war, his overall baseball reference war is, uh, is like 45. Yeah, point six, and and he's just uh, an eighty-two OPS plus. So this, the people who vote for Vizquel are, you know, the same kind of people who uh, would have said, "Well, I don't care what Mark Belanger hit; he's going in." And um, that's that doesn't work for me. Well, I have Bonds and Clemens on mine. I'm just going to come out and say it for me. Um, suspicion mm-hmm. or getting caught. Uh, I mean, I feel like at some point we're gonna we're gonna reward people just for not getting caught, and. At some point, too, some of it was done in, at times when it wasn't illegal yet or or was maybe not being tested for yet. And so, I mean, it is hard for me to draw a line. And fortunately for me, see, I have the benefit that you don't of of having more time even now to rethink my stance. Granted, you know, you've been doing this longer than me. You're older than I am. So you've certainly gone through those mental processes. But for me, I mean, I put them in just because I think even without the PEDs, they do get in and because – uh, you know, I, I I think some people draw a line at being suspended for it, which I get. I, I totally get where people draw their lines, and that's why I can't have too much outrage one way or the other. But for me too, if we end up punishing people for just not being caught versus being caught, that's a tough thing for me to do. So what that what that leaves for me is two more that we haven't uncovered yet, and I think that leaves three for you. Why don't you let us know who your other three are, and we can kind of break that down. Assuming there that I used all ten spots this time. Oh, that's right. I didn't and, think about uh, that. You you cannot make that assumption, even though I was uh, I was certainly the strategic ballot guy a couple of years ago when I felt strongly that Alan Trammell needed to still have a, a chance, and eventually got it. And I felt that, uh, of course, it took the committee to do it. The Veterans Committee got that one right, I believe. But um, and it was Larry Walker as well that uh, caused me, I believe, to leave Randy Johnson and Pedro Martinez off when they were polling strongly in the 90s, thanks to the Excel spreadsheet work of not Mr. Tibbs. I, I, I don't know if you saw this uh, Chris Archer thing. One more thing on the PED guys. I did. But, uh, I did. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, I really like Chris Archer. Uh, um, just a fascinating guy, uh, even before he ever comes close to taking the mound, a fascinating guy and a, and a cool modern athlete and, and not afraid to speak up with his thoughts. And on this case, he got on Twitter yesterday and, and, uh, I'll just read. He said, if, if you ever failed a test, got suspended or admitted to using performance enhancers, you should not be in the hall of fame. No hard feelings, but you disgrace the integrity of the game. Your stats are tainted. You don't deserve the honor. Um, and I, uh, I would side with him on that. Uh, okay, so two more. And uh, the most obvious one, and the only question, the only drama is, will Mariano Rivera be the first unanimous choice? I can't imagine it. Um, it was interesting that Bill Ballou, I mean, he's worthy of it, but I can't imagine that a voting body, even one of just 400-plus, would uh, would be 100%. It's just, uh, it's just too hard to get 
agreement and people can talk themselves into or out of anything. Um, but, uh, uh, somebody I have to think will leave them off. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be unanimous, but there've been others that should have been unanimous for sure. Right. Um, so I, yeah, obviously Rivera, I have no, no qualms about that at all, even though the, the save stat in general is soft and, uh, and the modern usage of closers is soft. Um, Rivera was certainly in what he did in postseason alone, where he was going four and five outs, um, which in the context again was, 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 uh, groundbreaking because we'd gotten to the point where they had to have clean innings. Um, so good. That's going to be nice to see. Mm-hmm. And um, and then Roy Halladay, sadly, uh, posthumously, yep. uh, appears that he will cruise into the Hall of Fame, and and and, uh, and I voted for him as well. But that's where I stopped. I stopped at nine this time. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, because uh, that's what I said. The toughest the guys I left off were Helton, um, McGriff, Oswalt, Vizquel. Those are the short list, I guess. Berkman to an extent, but uh, Helton was probably the one that uh, that I that I hovered my hand over that empty box uh, uh, for a bit, and um, and just realized that uh, there's no shame in stopping at nine. Was it was it a priority to you to have a situation where, let's just say, if you would have struggled over hypothetically Helton, Kent, McGriff, and Sheffield all the same, to leave them all off rather than picking one out of those four for your 10th pick? Or am I reading too much into that? Well, you're, yeah, you get to the point where you're splitting hairs and you do have to put them in a rough order. Um, yeah. You know, I don't really necessarily have the nine in an exact order, but uh, yeah, you have to make these these decisions. I, you go through that exercise yearly. And I was relieved to see these last couple of years stronger numbers going in to clear out the bout, the glut that had developed um, of worthy candidates before. I mean, it was a glut for me, never voting for the Bonses and Clemenses of the world. Yeah. The way the, the guys who, and the men and women who are voting for, for the, for anybody on that ballot based on their numbers alone. Um, they, I can only imagine how the frustration where they'll, they'll say they have 15 or 16 at times that they really wanted to check. I don't feel that way. And there, there sh- it should be, um, you can't look back at all the mistakes and keep lowering the bar. Right. Otherwise you do, you should just blow it up and just say, we're, you know, we're moving the hall of fame to, uh, to South Bend, Indiana, so I can go more often. And, uh, and we're going to just, Oh, we're going to start over, but, um, no, you can, we're not going to do that. So, um, so in that regard, you have to be intellectually honest. You have to go year to year. And uh, I, I do, say to myself, is there, I start with, is there any compelling reason to change the check marks that I gave last year to drop any of those people? Is anything at all changed about the way I look at their careers? And, and I, I don't believe I've, uh, I think I might've done that one time ever, uh, in, in these many years of doing it. Um, well, I changed it. I did at one point vote for somebody and then failed to vote for them. And I think that was a mistake. That was a while ago. That was probably a decade ago. So, um, yeah, that's um, that's where it's at. It'll be fascinating to see uh, what happens um, with some of these borderline calls, and and uh, you know, does um, it does appear from the from the Excel spreadsheet that does appear that there's a pretty good chance here, very good chance for Edgar to get in mm-hmm. and uh, Messina, but not Schilling. And and I think there will be a situation where if Messina gets in, then Schilling should too, because their careers were. Mm-hmm 
pretty similar um, in their uh, in the, you know different pitchers, but their but their contributions in their era and all that uh, their, their their cases are fairly similar to me. So, um, well, in terms so of low win totals, but other dominant aspects for for the benefit of whoever's tabulating this whether it's mr tibbs shut the door or anthony i'm going to read emphasize my ballot i'm obviously not mike and then i'll have you do yours too and that way when they're tabulating they don't have to follow us around but my ballot from top to bottom bonds clemens edgar martinez mike messina mariano rivera roy halliday larry walker scott Rowland. what did i write there Andrew Jones and Kurt Schilling. I, I couldn't read Kurt Schilling, which is uh, kind of funny. So that was my 10. Mike, if you want to re- redo your 10 so that it's easy for them to tabulate, because we are men of the people, uh, the people's champions, your 10, please, for, for their benefit. I have nine. Uh, uh, once more, math is nine. hard. Math is hard. I was, I was un- my understanding was there was going to be no math, so I'm sorry. I feel, I feel that you disapprove of my nine, and I, and I, can't, I can't move past that. Uh, the two first timers that I put on were Rivera and Halliday, and then seven holdovers for me: uh, Edgar Martinez, Messina, Schilling, Walker, Roland, Andrew Jones, and Billy Wagner. So that is uh, the class of 2019. Uh, let's uh, good luck to all who are uh, on that ballot and. It may uh, all the deserving candidates get in eventually. And so you told me off the air, I mean, obviously you are a distant observer to the Twins winter meltdown on Twitter. I'm using that phrase yeah. as a turn of phrase. Well, I, yeah. And so I don't know that, I don't know that the, that the geography matters at all in this. I think that you could have people on who are living in Argentina who might have the ability to flip on MLB trade rumors apps each day. There's and a Twins see where Brazil the account. Talent is going. There's you know? a Twins yeah. Brazil account. So I have a lot of respect for people who listen to us from uh, South America. Thank you, whoever is. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Our Twins Brazil. Yeah. You should. We should have them on. But um, go ahead. So you you told me you kind of see what the Twins might be trying to do here. And frankly, I do too. I mean, they don't have any pitcher signed past this year other than Jose Barrios. So it might come down to a Kyle Gibson extension, a Jake Odorizzi extension, a Michael Pineda extension, if all goes well. There are going to be ways where internally they're going to spend more as guys hit ARB 1, 2, 3, 4 in the case of Byron Buxton. So internally that payroll is going to grow as these players develop, whether they develop into stars or even just average uh, contributors. But guys like Eddie Rosario are going to get expensive fairly quickly, Jorge Polanco, if he continues to play as he has. Part of that, too, to me means that they are going to have to be a little more responsible on the front end to to raise that payroll slowly and organically. But I suspect the angle that you're thinking might be a little different than that. Could Could you fill us in? Yes, I want to uh, just say that I, I spent some time on the roster resource site. And, Such a great uh, site, by the way. Exit. It's wonderful. And I used my calculator, and I would like to share with the listeners some things that I think might be driving this pro and con, some of the twins' reluctance. So well, first, let me start with a reminder. I was I was surprised sitting here in uh, the middle of, July, or of January. It's January uh, 18th, and I went back and looked. Um, do you know how much money the twins committed in twenty in, in payroll? How much how much money they handed out from January 15 
through the middle of spring training last year. Was it like 20-something million, 26, something like that? I can't remember. It, that would be pretty stout, right? Well, th- it was actually more than that, that if you factor in the two-year deal they gave to Addison Reed. Sure. Addison Reed effectively signed on January 15th. That's the signing date that was listed. It may have leaked out earlier. Uh, Ken Rosenthal had that. But uh, January 15th is when it went through, I guess, it's listed there. Uh, then you add Odorizzi in trade once they get to spring training. Logan Morrison signing. Lance Lynn signing. Those four came to $41.5 million of the Twins outlay from January 15th on. So to sit here in the middle of January again, one year later, and have this roiling debate about whether the Twins are just going to pocket all the Mauer money or whatever mm-hmm. is absurd, especially when you see how many uh, names are still on the list. You've done a very nice job of breaking down a variety of options for them to spend the money on. But I think that if you're the twins, uh, it doesn't make you a twins apologist to point out that recent history of this front office shows that they will wait, they will outweigh the market. And it's not always going to go well, because if you really look at it, in some ways they went over four on those last year, sure. but every one of those at the moment of the signing was lauded. Every one of those people said, and I was among them, and it was, and I'm being intellectually honest at the time, and I'm being honest now that I, we were perhaps wrong. But Addison Reed was like, that's the first outside multi year deal for a free agent reliever that they had ever given out. And he gave them six to seven really good weeks, but yeah. pitching every other day turns out to be a bad idea. That was too much. Mm-hmm. So he broke down for the first time in his career. But they still have him on the hook this year, and I do think that perhaps that's informing some of their reluctance, not just the money they owe him, but the idea of a multi-year deal for a believer and the idea of being aggressive even in the mid-range of that market, the Cody Allen types, much less the Kimbrels. I think that's informing it. They're not – the Falvey and Levine have not forgotten that experience. They hope that Addison Reed bounces back and gives him something with the, like what he's done in his career, but there's no guarantee. Forty-one and a half million, the Twins handed out from this point forward, um, between now and the middle of spring training in Fort Myers. So why is this all happening now? Well, and that that's point one. Pay, that's well, point one. Let me, let me so just, just step just in. Sit, where, what happened to just sitting back and letting the process unfold? Yeah. Has well, anyone ever played poker? <laughs> well, my, here's the thing, too. Um, payroll is a snapshot in time, and that's more so true when you look year to year. I mean, it's it's not always any kind of correlation because you've got guys, you know, the, you know, Ozzie Albies for the Braves making 500 grand versus Nick Markakis making 8 million. That there, There's no correlation there necessarily as much as it is being a veteran. But payroll in mid-January, what's, I mean, what's a piece of a snapshot, a frame? A pixel? I mean, literally, choosing today to freak out about the payroll makes no sense at all. And again, I'm not saying $96 million is an acceptable payroll, but at the same time, too, I'm looking at the players available and where they're at now, and I'm thinking, okay, you could use a number two starter, so maybe Dallas Keuchel, if, if you like him, Gio Gonzalez. You could, if you subscribe my 
to my line of thinking, you could sign a position player and outfielder like AJ Pollock and then move some guys around, but I don't think that's going to happen. But you, you do that position flexibility thing. But it is a team that's largely young guys in place. I mean, are you going to sign a third baseman and then just say, hey, stick it, Miguel Sano? No. You're not going to do it at second base because you just signed Scope. You're not signing a—I mean, all these guys that are available, it's like you can't just keep adding players. You have a 40-man roster, a 25-man roster, options and all this stuff. Like, there's crazy levels of nuance that people aren't thinking about. Are you going to sign Nick Vincent if it means you don't have Adalberto Mejia on your roster and you have to trade him because he's out of options? All this nuance has to be considered before you consider the payroll figure as a number— on April 1, let alone on January 18. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yes, uh, well well stated. Uh, I'd also like, since that number 96, it seemed low to me, so in looking at roster resource, I keep seeing people mentioning 96, and, I, and they're leaving out. Uh, it's, it may not seem like a huge issue for people and fan base who just wants to see new players now, but um, they're leaving out the fact that the Twins in this year if you fold in the six million for Phil Hughes, right. they were able, and Phil Hughes is done. Yep. Uh, they, they were able; they're still having to pay off the six million there, and then a million each for Irvin and for Lomo in terms of options that yep. they bought out. That's another eight million. So really, I think it's in apples to apples. You should be calling this. The Twins are sitting at one hundred and three point three million right now, and forty million of that is is going to twelve arbitration people. So. Mm-hmm. You know they had their players are at a stage where they're they're in many cases uh, getting uh, eight to tenfold raises um, off one year to the other. So that so really the number is not 96. If they're sitting at 103. Now what does that mean? They were 128.7 just a year ago. Well, a lot of that, like we just said, came late. It was opportunistic. They were special situations in each case requiring ownership approval uh, on the fly based on what was happening not just with the twins and their ability to increase their expected win total, but what was happening with the rest of the division. A year ago, three-fifths of the division was not trying to win. Now it's two-fifths of the division that's not trying to win, Mm -hmm. and the White Sox may really be trying to win if they're able to get Machado, and I think they probably will. Um, so that changed the, the dynamic a little bit. And also there's this the specter, not insignificant, of what the Indians have already done and what they may yet do. So if you're the twins and you're going day to day, do we do something today? Let's see what happens with Kluber. Do we do something in a week? Let's see what happens with Kluber. Yeah. Corey Kluber may be the linchpin if he is moved on by the Indians for future pieces, for outfield help for cheaper labor, that may be the thing that causes the twins then to pick up the phone and bring in a one more reliever to bring in one more starter. Uh, but if Kluber's still in your division, I'm not saying that alone dictates your behavior, but it's a, it's a key point. Um, from 2015 to 2017, people quickly forget that the twins opening day payrolls in that period was, uh, but between 105 and 108 million each time. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, uh, year one of Malder, they go all the way down to the last weekend. I realized that across the game, largely payrolls increase, revenues increase. But they were in a comfortable. There was that was their comfort zone. It appeared in the middle of the decade, 105 to 108. They're one more Blake Parker type signing from being right there, right there, right in that same. Uh, last year was clearly the outlier and the aberration. Um, to the way the twins have operated in this decade in the target field period. 
they're one more small tweak from being right there. Essentially, they're there right now. Now, I, I don't, I, I do want to say, there. Here's my research portion. This is all thanks to roster resource. So if they're wrong, blame them. <laughs> but I, I have some staggering. To me, if you look at it this way. I don't know if we can agree on anything anymore, especially on Twitter. I don't know if we can agree on anything, even in sports. But I think as a close observer of this game for decades and as someone who still I had to preview the American League Central for Street and Smiths. I had to preview it for Baseball Digest. I'm paying attention to what's happening in 2019 um, just without the need to cover game by game, which is great. Uh, I'm curious to see where this division, who will take control of this division in the post-Indians era, which is coming. Well, what's the best way to get there? Is it to spend profligately, if I can say it, on the first shiny bobble that comes across, or to have discipline that's unwavering, to have a plan that only you know internally, you and your closest advisors know, you don't need to share it publicly with people because then your competitors know it, your close competitors. I would submit to you, Brandon, that the Twins are sitting on something that I have not seen outside of a Marlins context where they were just absolutely they broke it down to 15 million. I remember in 2006 and they chased the wild card to the final 10 days under Joe Girardi. Well, that was a long time ago. That was almost a decade and a half ago. The Minnesota Twins from 2020 forward this season, a lot of money already spoken for. We've just said 103.3. From 2020 forward, how much money are the Minnesota Twins on the hook for guaranteed money? Zero. Almost. Ah. 300000 is the worst case on the buyout to Nelly Nelson Cruz. Cruz. Yep. Nelson Cruz, 300000 Now, that's not going to get you in the postseason in 2019. But what it does is as long as you hold on to that level of a clean balance sheet, essentially think of it in terms of student debt or consumer debt, what we all wouldn't give to have zero debt essentially from 2020 forward, it buys you, it gives you purchasing power. It gives you freedom of decision-making. It gives you the chance not to cry yourself to sleep because you owe Jordan Zimmerman $25 million. Oh, dear. Let's look at what these the rest of the American League is on the hook for 2020 and beyond. And I'll run through this list quickly because uh, I have it in order. The New York Yankees from 2020 and beyond, $318 million. The Boston Red Sox, no surprise, from 2020 forward, $264 million. And some teams might surprise you. The LA Angels, the Angels who may have to make Mike Trout available in accelerated free agency because they don't know how to get him signed up. Why would he sign up? Because their flexibility is poor. Their payroll flexibility going forward, not very good. $194 million still on the books from 2020 and beyond. Houston, 182 2020 and beyond. Uh, $145 of that is for Jose Altuve over a five-year period. So the rest of it's fairly flexible, but what if Altuve's don't uh, account for what they have for the last half decade? What mm-hmm. if he falls off the cliff somehow? They're looking at $29 million a year that they will rue. Seattle, even though Jerry DePoto has, uh, has flipped it quickly and moved all kinds of pieces out the door, Robinson Cano, et cetera, 
still $147 million, Brandon, Senior on the books there. 2020 and beyond, limiting their buying power. Yep. Detroit Tigers, the aforementioned Tigers. Oh, no. $163 million. I skipped over them. Zimmerman's just 25 of it. The rest is an aging Miguel Cabrera. Uh, who eventually will just be carcass Miguel Cabrera. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, they are limited. They are completely limited in what they can do. They're a close competitor, obviously, of the Twins. From there, Texas, new ballpark coming. No flexibility, $147 million on the books from 2020 and beyond. They're not even trying to win. $30 million of that is Lance Lynn for three Ugh. years of Lance Lynn. Why on earth did the Texas Rangers decide they needed Lance Lynn right now? Can, can I, can I say one thing? Year? Can I say one thing, too? Why? <laughs> Here's the one thing, though. That I was going to say, too. When you sign guys like that earlier in the offseason, if the Twins had an extra $30 million committed to Lance Lynn right now, let's just say a hypothetical four-year, $48 million deal, that, that would be meeting these people's desire for a higher payroll number, but not moving the needle. This is so <laughs> smart to wait this late in the offseason. Like with Nelson Cruz, yes. it made sense because he had so few suitors. But if you get a Nick Vincent for one year and $5 million instead of three years and fifteen, you know, you're not spending $6 million a year on Lugies or the Brett Cecil deal. That, that discipline really does matter. I mean, if Logan Morrison gets three years and $30 million, how bad does that look right now? That That is something that needs to be respected by these fans who say, well, why don't you have money spent? And they're like, well, because money saved, you know, you're assuming the pocket poll ads are going to pocket it, but it just also is freedom to give Byron Buxton an extension if he hits the ground running this year, so on and so forth. So I, I totally love where you're coming from here. Let me complete the bottom sure. part of the list. Cause I think even some of the more so quote unquote modest numbers will astound people because uh, I, I couldn't believe it myself. So we, so we're within the division now. Um, Detroit at 163, Seattle and Texas 147. Then you drop down to Cleveland. Now here's Cleveland. What is what is Cleveland? Even with all the subtractions Cleveland has made this off season so far, still needing to make more subtractions. Why? They're on the hook for 108 million dollars from 2020 and beyond. That includes that's not even including eight club options. There's eight more players, all significant contributors at various stages of their careers. Haven't even gotten around to some of the guys that they really need to lock up well into the next decade, but mm-hmm. their hands are tied because they're on the hook for 108 in declining attendance period, uh, cable deal issues. That's another point with the twins Their cable deal should improve markedly. Uh, once this one runs out in 2023, based on my reporting, they're making 40 million a year through 2023 on average that's a 12-year deal they locked into so they're they're once they get into the middle of this next decade i think that number could double or triple depending on where uh, sports broadcasting fees continue we 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 keep waiting for the correction but it seems like they find a way forward Mm -hmm. um so cleveland i'd say is in some trouble how how would you like to be kansas city brandon 93 million dollars on the books from 2020 and beyond this is why you don't hear any talk in kansas city about turning it around or timetables because Danny Duffy, Ian Kennedy and Salvi Perez, God bless him, are eating up the vast majority of that 93 million going forward. The white Sox are able to be in this Machado talk because they're at 36 million. They broke it all the way down. Obviously the stale and, uh, Eaton trades, uh, and the, and the the return on those was excellent. Uh, Quintana, the return was excellent, but they're just, they're this close to squandering their flexibility. 
by putting, pushing all the chips into the middle of the table and taking Machado. If you're a Twins fan, I think you should say go right ahead. Well, that, that's why um, I had them then, signing Harper, though. Like That was my theory was th- that they do have the flexibility to do it. I'm not saying it's the right move, but to me, that's why I get where they're at. But I, I, I like where you're yeah. going here. All right, so let, let me just complete. Now, these are the, the people below $100 million. Uh, within the rest of the American League, $98 million for the Baltimore Orioles on the books from 2020 and forward. That's Chris Davis and Alex Cobb, all to those two uh, mistake signings. Mm-hmm. Tampa Bay has this reputation. It shocked me. Tampa Bay has this reputation as being this team that's, you know, footloose and fancy free. Uh, uh, nobody nobody traps the Rays, right? Well, I really like Kevin Kiermaier, but he's on the books through 2022. And I really like Charlie Morton, but I don't know if where they are at in their uh, and especially within the context of the of the Yankees and Red Sox, where they're at, that he made a ton of sense for them. He made sense for somebody on that two year deal, but I don't know for them. They're at sixty one million on the books with no stadium certainty. Uh, you know, attendance in the four figures nightly. I don't think that makes sense for them to be locked up to sixty one million from twenty twenty and forward. The Oakland A's. Nobody spends more carefully than the Oakland A's. Forty-one million dollars on the books. Most of that, Stevens, Stephen Piscotty, and they have no idea where they need to be playing going forward. Yeah. Toronto, with with Mark Shapiro, the man who taught the ins and outs of the game to Derek Falvey in terms of a business perspective and merging business and baseball, they have broken it down to thirty-five and a half million still left on the books. They are the next most. A flexible team in terms of future obligations in the American League to the Twins, but it's still thirty-five and a half million, and all that's going to Guriel and still some Tulo money. Then you drop all the way down to the Twins once again, three hundred thousand committed. Uh, so it's a hundred times more. Beyond. It's a hundred times more for the next, the next team. Hundred times more money committed. So it's astounding. So then, um, you know, because we, we we when you speak in the abstract. Or you just go decision by decision and you say, well, that guy signed. Why didn't the Twins get him? That guy signed. Why didn't they get him? No, I think they have something more up their sleeve here, Brandon. I think they have achieved something that's incredibly rare in modern sports. And that is, at the moment, as we sit here, they have almost complete payroll flexibility from 2020 and into the remainder of the decade, the next decade. And that buys them something. What is it? Only they know at this moment what their ideal scenario is, but I guarantee you they have that scenario cooking inside the offices, and I guarantee you that it's not going to be done because they wake up one day and they're like, we've got to win Twitter today. We just have to win it. So uh, all add all that up, the 14 American League competitors, to put a bow on it, have $1.89 billion on the books from 2020 into the next decade, Minnesota Twins have 300,000. That's an average of 135 million per competitor in the American League that they must pay out. There's no getting out of that money. They will pay that out. That's the bare minimum, and that's not counting all the the uh, club extensions and or club options, mutual options, uh, go away money, anything else that may have to happen. 135. I I submit to you that the Twins are right where they want to be. That is that is art. Now let me let me ask you one pull away, tear away, walk away question. How much of a red flag is it that Cody Allen signs an affordable deal and neither Derek Falvey nor the Cleveland Indians want anything to do with him? 
Yep. Well, I would say look at Brian Shaw and what yeah. happened the, um, yeah. the year before. They spent forty. When they the spent Indians forty-five million on relievers hey. last year, the Rockies did. And they had a worse ERA than the Twins. Exactly. So I hate if you're going to spend spend it on starting pitching, spend it on everyday talent, especially up the middle. Don't spend it on relievers. And I love the idea of of and I see it. I see you mentioning it. I see others. It makes sense. I did the Twins top thirty one more time for Baseball America. I love the idea of Fernando Romero and Cole Stewart uh, pitching the sixth and seventh inning for the Twins in 2019. I love that idea. Yeah, Cole um, Stewart would be dirty in the bullpen, I think. I, I think so. I think so in smaller doses, and, yeah. and maybe Romero goes into your closer, but yeah. he, he doesn't have to immediately. Sure. Um, this is this is the cheapest bullpen labor and the highest upside. Why? Because at one point, very recently, at the moment, they had enough stuff, or at least were borderline, to go through the lineup two to three times. A lot of these relievers, the Adovinos of the world, are are shiny and and exciting, and you can talk yourself into it even with analytics. But the market dragged his cost up so high, and then again, taking you into the next decade when you have worked so hard to get to this point where you have a clean balance sheet and a complete flexibility and you're on you your purchases now are on your terms they're not made out of uh, desperation or, or or to quiet the masses or to sell a few more uh, partial season ticket packages none of that matters what matters is are you on path somehow to become a sustainable championship level contender mm-hmm. that will dominate the twenties because you had the discipline at the end of the teens to, to wait, to just wait, let everybody else spend themselves into oblivion when spending uh, granted, there are still opportunities. And I think Cruz is one of them. There are opportunities on shorter terms because of the weird stuff that's going on CBA wise. But um, yeah. that doesn't mean that uh, every free agent that signs the bargain. And you make a great point. If the Cleveland Indians um, uh, are letting a Cody Allen go out the door when he probably would have gladly stayed there on those same terms, uh, and they desperately need relief help, I mean, beyond hand and, and uh, Simber, who's a nice pickup, uh, Otero still there. But uh, uh, Cody Allen's measurables, the analytics, I just glanced at before we came on, I mean, the swinging strike rate had plummeted last year. Uh, the hard contact jumped. Um, the, the walk rate spiked in a scary fashion. I mean, uh, um, there's a lot of reasons. And, of course, you saw it anecdotally uh, when the Twins played them, uh, you know, six different series. Cody Allen, not the same pitcher. And, and I think the Angels uh, aren't going to exactly look brilliant at the end of that process. But, again, a one-year deal, some, you know, I guess Jim Beatty uh, says, Kimball Crossley said on an earlier edition of this show, there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal. I don't know about that, but uh, yeah. it's a lot harder to uh, it's a lot harder to to cry yourself to sleep at night because of a one-year deal. Well, I'm going to hit you with this number as we let you go. Adam Ottavino, 5.06 ERA in 2017. In the previous three years, 2.0 F WAR in 2018. The previous three years combined, 0.9 F WAR. So, if there's any sort of regression for Adam Ottavino, you're going to have a lot of fun paying 27 million to that. Mike, thank you so much <laughs> for taking all that time out of your day. We went a little longer than you hoped, but wall-to-wall good stuff. Thank you, and let's have you on again soon. Maybe talk about your favorite places to pick up a burger in uh, in South Bend. How about that? 
Yeah, I think we lost him. Well, anyway, thank you so much to Mike. I'm sure he'll hopefully listen back and hear us saying thank you. For producer Justin, for T. Schreier, three at Tom Schreier, the pod father, this is Brandon Warren saying so long, and thank you for joining us on another special edition of Midwest Swing. 